We'll be reading again from the book of Acts chapter 16. The book of Acts chapter 16. We'll back up to verse 11. Acts chapter 16, verse 11. Very familiar passage of scripture. We're looking at Paul's time in Philippi. And I have to look through this passage of scripture. Why did they land in Philippi? Well, we know, of course, if you back up a couple of verses that Paul was trying to discern God's will in his missionary journeys, and of course he was determining, uh, of course, to go in the direction God wanted him, and he got what we call the Macedonian call, and a vision at night, a man from Macedonia said, come over to Macedonia and help us. In other words, we could really, really use an evangelist over in Macedonia, and in this passage of scripture, we see why did they land in Macedonia. They went through two or three, of, in Philippi, they went through two or three towns, then they land in Philippi. In this passage of scripture, we see evidences that uh, Philippi was in desperate need of evangelism. They really needed a preacher in town to preach the gospel. And we'll see that as we read through Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. Would you stand as the scriptures read, please? <clears throat> Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But her master saw that their hope of profit was gone. And they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And they laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, and commanded the jailer to keep them secretly. Having received a, such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the story of how you have reached the world with the gospel. We're still part of that story. We ask that you direct us as a church through the upcoming years. 
Direct us as individuals each and every day and give us opportunities to share the love and the message of Jesus Christ. There's a world that needs this message. Father, we ask you to send us into those corners that need it the most. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Why would they land at Philippi? Of course, we know it was the leadership of the Holy Spirit, but why would God lead them there? Uh, Luke, of course, condenses some things. He says nothing of them staying at Troas and Samothrace and Neapolis, but he says, then we came to Philippi and we stayed there. Obviously, Philippi needed some evangelists. We see some evidences of this in this passage of Scripture. First of all, back in verse 11, it says they came to Philippi. And on verse 13, it says, On the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. There we sat down and spoke to the women, women who met there. Now, you have to do a little bit of homework and understand that there's a lot that he said in just a few words. First of all, in every city all over the Roman Empire, if you had 10 Jewish men in the city, they would formulate a synagogue. And you see over and over in Paul's ministry, he would go to the town and he would go straight to the synagogue and meet there. They're not meeting in a synagogue. They're meeting by the riverside. That's where they would meet if they did not have a synagogue. This is all the way back to the 137th Psalm in the Babylonian captivity. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, we hanged our hearts on the willows. So we understand they were meeting by the riverside. And that tells us this. Philippi had an absence of men who worshipped God because there were not 10 Jewish men in that whole city that worshipped God. Women were meeting out at the customary place of prayer where Jewish people would meet if there were no synagogue. So there were not 10 men in the city. Not ten God-fearing men in the whole town. They really needed some evangelization in that town. Now, how many people were in the town of Philippi? It says it's one of the foremost cities of Macedonia. I did a little bit of research. Best I could tell, there were at least 10,000 people in Philippi. That's a town the size of Magnolia. A town the size of Magnolia, and they couldn't find ten men who worshiped God, definitely needed an evangelist. Secondly, like all Roman cities, they were dealing with the prevalence of slavery. You see this over and over in the New Testament. It says, as we went to prayer, to that place of prayer, a certain slave girl. There were several times where you see the word slave mentioned. And, of course, this was not in Philippi. This was over the whole Roman Empire. In fact, the senators one time thought it would be a great idea if they would make the slaves wear a particular type of garment so they could identify them. And then they quickly realized that's not a good idea because they understood there were more slaves than there were free people in the Roman Empire. And if the slaves knew how many people, that, how many slaves there were, they could plan an uprising. So they pretty well uh, canceled that before the decree went out. It was a horrible institution. Slaves were property. They were not even treated as well as animals sometimes. They were treated like property. 
So you have to ask the question, why did they not preach against slavery and protest publicly against slavery? Well, the reason is this. Once they started protesting and preaching against slavery, it would be identified as the key point of the local church. In other words, the church would be known for that message and that message only. Well, God had a bigger message. And you say, well, what's bigger than slavery? Being enslaved by another individual. Being enslaved by sin is a bigger message. And we wanted to, of course, stress evangelism and security of the soul. Now, it is important to address social sins of a culture. But these will never, ever be corrected until the personal sins of the heart are dealt with. Why? Because culture and society made up of people. You don't correct what's going on in the heart. You will never, ever correct what's going on in the culture. And a lot of times people want to get the cart before the horse and start trying to address the social sins and quite ignore the personal sins. You know why that's prevalent? It's easier to do that. Because a lot of times the social sins are somebody else's sins, not mine. But the gospel hits home and hits home that personal sin must be dealt with. And we are accountable for that. Once that is addressed, then you have people who are willing to deal with the social sins. Now, Paul did make it known of his stand on slavery. Because sometimes people say, well, Paul didn't say anything about slavery. How could that be? Well, he said it two different times that we can identify in the scriptures. Quite interesting passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1. I look in verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I look at verse 8. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for men slayers, for fornicators and sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. What a list of bad people. What a list of bad people. In the King James Version, it says for kidnappers. I believe in the, in the New King James, it says kidnappers. I believe in the King James, it says men stealers. Now, this could be translated in general as kidnappers because this activity was going on. However, this is a technical term specifically, kidnappers in order to enslave people. Three Greek scholars, Kenneth Wiest, Archibald Robertson, and William Barclay, translate this from the original Greek to the technical term slave dealers. Slave dealers. So, Paul did let the world know of his opinion of slavery. Slave dealers were listed along with these other folks who were a real list of bad people. 
there with murderers and men, men slayers and, 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 of course, liars and unholy and profane, and right there in the middle of it, slave dealers. So he did let the world know of his opinion of slavery, and it is a just and right opinion. And, of course, you remember his letter to Philemon. Now, we've gone over this letter before, but here's what he said, more or less. Philemon, you're a saved man now. And if you're really a saved man, you need to consider Onesimus, your runaway slave, as a brother and not as a slave anymore. Wow. You know what he's dealing with? The heart. Not with legislature, not with the Senate, not with a social ill, but a personal responsibility. Philemon, you are personally responsible for how you're treating that man that you once called a slave. He's not a slave, he's a brother. You need to treat him as a brother. Now, slavery is a social ill that we're still paying for today in the United States. You know that. There was absolutely no ethical, moral, or biblical justification for the institution of slavery in any country. Philippi had this institution. It needed evangelism. Because this institution, of course, goes against everything concerning the gospel. When you treat another person, not as a person, but as property, that does violence to the gospel. We also see the unbalanced importance of money. This town was in need of evangelization because of the unbalanced importance of money. You see the problem here. This slave girl who had been under some sort of domination of an evil spirit of some sort, some sort of disorder. We don't know exactly what it is. As I mentioned this morning, there's a lot that we don't understand this. But we know this. She didn't have a life. She was a captive. She was enslaved by people. She was enslaved by something that dominated her. And she was totally set free by the Apostle Paul. And nobody in town was happy. Nobody. Why? Because of their unbalanced importance of money. It overruled any concern for this girl's welfare. They didn't care. They were making money off of her. They were exploiting her. And now she was a lot better off, and they were mad. Now, this reminds us, if you remember, Jesus had a similar event that happened. You remember the man in the cemetery didn't wear any clothes, screaming loud all day, all night. This is in Mark chapter 5. They said you couldn't even bind him with chains. He was breaking chains. He was a wild man. Jesus, of course, sends the demons out, sends them in the hogs. Hogs have better sense than people. They're not going to live with a, with a demon. And they ran down the bank. And the people from the town came out. And they saw this man, quiet, calm, clothed, as Mark says, and in his right mind. And they looked at Jesus and said, out, we're not going to have you in our town. Why? They lost money. And their concern for money overruled the wonderful thing that Jesus did. They didn't care about people. They cared about money. And of course, in Ephesus, 
in Acts chapter 19. You have a guild of silversmiths that made these little shrines and idols to Diana. People were getting saved. They didn't need to buy these anymore. They ran Paul out of town. You see, the only times in Scripture where you have Gentiles, non-Jewish people resisting the gospel, it had to do with money. Had to do with money. The times we see Gentile, Greek, non-Jewish people ran Paul out of town, ran Jesus off of the banks of the Gadarenes, it had to do with money. It's no wonder that Paul said this in the book of 1 Timothy, again, chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 6. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Uh, perdition is a word that means lostness. They are lost in their greed. They are lost in this quest for money. And it says it drowns them in destruction. Then he says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, a lot of times people say, well, you know what the Bible says, money's the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It says the love of money. So we see, of course, they had an unbalanced importance of money, and it shows itself in the other symptom that they have, the widespread distribution of deceptive information. Now, Paul had ruined their little money-making scheme. So if you look in verse 20, they brought them to the magistrates. Notice they didn't say, they tore up our playhouse, we can't make money anymore. It said this, these men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. There's absolutely nothing in the gospel message that was unlawful for anybody in Rome. It was totally false. But they were spreading intentionally deceptive information. You know... Now you have a term for that. It's called fake news. We've heard that before for the last four years, hadn't we? Well, it didn't start in America three or four years ago. It started way back there. They were spreading the fact that these guys are making trouble. They're going to tell you to do something that's against the law. Now, none of that took place. But their unbalanced value of money outweighed the importance of the truth. And that's the problem. That's the problem. So you might say, man, was, was there any bright spot in Philippi up to now? Well, actually there was. All of this darkness, Paul had already considered I mean, he had already observed and experienced and witnessed the occurrence of what men had previously said would be impossible. 
Now, those guys that are in my Sunday school class, they, this is kind of a repeat because we looked at Liddy in Sunday school class today. You see, if you look at Lydia, Lydia, she was saved when they met with those women by the riverbanks. She accepted Christ. It says she accepted Christ, made a public profession of faith, and was baptized. She accepted Christ. Now, what does this have to do with the impossibility? Well, you have to know some things about Lydia. Lydia was a seller of Purple dye was one of the most expensive substances in the world at that time. It was made by some little shellfish that excreted this solution drop by drop. Or it was made from a, the root of a, a madder plant. And of course, the production of it, the extraction of it, was so tedious, it was the most, one of the most expensive substances. And of course, she was a seller of purple dye. Also, the word purple has to do with the garments that were made with this purple dye. Purple garments were reserved for the richest of the rich. You remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? And Jesus was telling the parable, and he talks about this man, this rich man. How rich was he? He was the richest of the rich. He fared sumptuously every day and was clothed with purple and fine linen. That's how important purple was. When Jesus wanted to say, let me tell you how rich he was, he was clothed with purple. That's all he needed to say. He was the richest of the rich. Well, this was Lydia. Lydia sold this stuff. Her clients were the richest and the most powerful people in the world. She was a very, very wealthy person. That's the what. Now let me give you the so what. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Look at verse 21. Jesus was talking to the rich, young ruler. And notice what he said. Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Take up the cross and follow me. He was sad at his word, and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. Jesus answered again and said, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Jesus said, with men this is impossible, but with God nothing is impossible. With pure human effort, it is impossible to consider that a rich person would be saved. But with God, nothing is impossible. And there on the banks of that river, 
one of the wealthiest women in town, got saved. Now, Paul didn't say for her to sell her wealth because wealth wasn't a problem. You know why? She obviously wasn't trusting in that anymore. She was trusting in Jesus now. And we know for a fact that her wealth was used for the gospel. She said, if you judge me worthy, why don't y'all come stay with me? She had this huge house. I'm sure she was a wealthy person. So now there was Paul and Silas and Timothy and others and Luke. We know they were there. At least four travelers. They could stay in a nice, comfortable, big house, totally rent-free now. That expense was gone. And they could work to evangelize Philippi because Lydia let them stay at her house. She was still rich. She was still wealthy. Paul had witnessed the impossible. A wealthy person has gotten saved. And now they're using their wealth for the cause of Christ. If you remember when he writes to the Philippians later on, in Philippians chapter 4, he says, you are so generous with me that over and again, once and again, you sent an offering to me. Now, we think, of course, that Lydia probably had something to do with that. She was a wealthy person. We don't know how many other wealthy people were there, but let me tell you, I'm going to circle back around to what we mentioned this morning. Lydia had just gotten saved, and she said, why don't y'all come and stay at my house, and you'll be comfortable? And to stay at their house meant that they'd be eating at her house too. I'll give you a place to stay. I'll feed you your meals. Lydia had been saved before she went home from that river. She was making a difference in the efforts of the evangelist. Wow, what a common thing. People who are saved and following Christ will make a difference in their world with what they have and what they can do. That's the principle that we find in the Philippian experience. Is there anything before we close? 